this is our third week. Uh, for those of you that uh, maybe haven't been here the last two weeks, just to catch you up on what we've been talking about, um, I've been doing a series, a four-week series, on the concept or the doctrine of the family of God and, and what that means for us today and, and just, uh, in general, the theme of family in Scripture. Um, and so the first week... I, I emphasized how we are made part of the family of God, and I emphasized that the family of God is a, is a real thing. And so uh, we talked about there's three ways in the New Testament that we're made part of God's family. Uh, the first is adoption, the second is rebirth, and the third is a marriage covenant with God. And the reason why, uh, or each one of those kind of reveals a different aspect of how we are made to relate to God within God's family. Uh, if we are followers of Christ. And so adoption is about inheritance. It's about God sharing the good things of God with us. And so becoming a Christian is not just, um, not just uh, salvation from guilt and justice uh, and salvation from our sin. It's, it's also receiving the great gift of being able to share with God and in his inheritance. And that is a tremendous uh, gift that, that we don't even understand how big it is. Uh, but adoption is about sharing the inheritance of God with us. Uh, and then rebirth is about regeneration. It's about making us new. It's about cleansing us uh, and healing us of any hurt and wounds. And so we're reborn into God's family just like anybody is born into, uh, into a real family. And then, uh, and then marriage, the marriage covenant is about commitment and it's about intimacy, and so Christ enters into a marriage covenant with the church. And what that is about is that we are, we are designed to be intimate with him. And, and the way our future, what our future looks like is that we will be e- eternally made one with him, just like marriage makes two people into one. Uh, we are designed to be in an intimate relationship with Christ. And, and we're not truly um, enjoying um, the full gift of a relationship with God, unless we understand it's about intimate relationship uh, with him. And then last week, I focused on this relational aspect, that the gospel is, is relational and that we don't understand, or we won't interpret the Bible correctly uh, or fully unless we understand it in the context of relationship. And so the commands of God uh, and the things that God did, the things that he expects from us, are from the perspective of a God with great love for us uh, that is calling us into relationship with him. And so if I uh, expect certain things from a a friend of mine or somebody that I love very dearly, um, it's not selfish in the context of a loving relationship because a loving relationship always uh, involves both, both sides, both persons. Uh, doing things and giving up things for the good of the relationship. And, and unfaithfulness uh, to a relationship is, is betrayal of that relationship. The opposite of faithfulness is betrayal. And so when the Bible calls us to faithfulness to God, it is in that context. Uh, and then obedience to God is basically expressing our love for him. Um, and so understanding things like the differences between the extremes of legalism and um, having a relaxed attitude about uh, good and evil, uh, both of those extremes miss the point. The point is that we're meant to be in relationship with God, and that expressing love for God will cause us to want to do good things to please him. Um, but, um, 
and, and just showing our love and then not doing good things is not congruent with a loving attitude toward God. Um, but the purpose is the relationship. The purpose is not to try to earn or merit God's love through our actions. In the same way that if I do a lot of nice things to you, uh, but I'm not actually looking uh, for love and I'm not actually loving you, it's not a real relationship. Uh, it's deeper than that. So, so up to this point, um, we've talked about the importance of relationship and we've talked about the fact that, that the family of God is real. Uh, the other thing we mentioned last week is that to understand the sacrifice that God the Father made when Jesus died on the cross, we need to understand that he really is a father. He really is the father of Christ. And so just like any father would go through pain to see the son that they love suffer, God the Father went through that pain for us. And so um, what we have is a, is a beautiful picture of God's love for uh, the world, for us. And, uh, and then our response to that, um, you know, needs to take that into account and, and, and understand that. So this week I want to start with a, an illustration. Uh, when I was a kid, I, uh, I wanted to be a professional athlete, like a lot of boys. Uh, looking at me now, you can see why it didn't happen. <laughs> uh, not the right size, at least for the sports I was interested in, which were primarily basketball and football. Um, and, uh, and lots of other things, I'm not fast enough, I uh, can't throw the ball very far, lots of things that don't, don't work uh, with professional ath- athletics. And so, anyway, but as a kid, I didn't know that. And I actually uh, was about this size in eighth grade, so I was bigger than all the other kids. So I thought, I'm going to kill this. Uh, and, uh, and in ninth grade, I, uh, I went to a smaller school, uh, and I had intentions of starting on the football team. Uh, but it, it didn't happen. I got hurt at the beginning of the season, and, and then I basically got replaced. And when I came back, I wasn't fully uh, up to speed until kind of later in the season. And by that time, uh, the coaches had moved on from me, and, and I never got to play. And, and I had the expectation, because it was a smaller school, that I would start. And, and I had a plan for my life, a trajectory that involved a lot of accolades and, and fame and fortune uh, that didn't fit with me not getting to play. And, and so I was utterly devastated because my expectations were completely different than what actually happened. But at the same time, uh, I ended up moving schools. I, I didn't have as big of an attachment to that school because I wasn't going to play. And I, I decided to go to a school closer to home. Um, and through that, I, I met a lot of people that I'm still good friends with today. And, and I now see, looking back, that even as devastated and as distraught as I was as a ninth grader, uh, as, as distraught as a ninth grader can be, um, it actually was really good for me. Uh, I saw a friend of mine uh, two weeks ago that I met the second semester of ninth grade because I didn't make it in football. Uh, and we're still good friends today, and, and it's been a tremendous blessing on my life. And if I had uh, understood that and just uh, trusted that things were um, not, that I didn't have all the information, I didn't understand everything that was going on, uh, that, that something that seemed bad might actually be better for me in the long run, uh, I would not have suffered nearly as much as I did uh, during my ninth grade year. And so today what I want to talk about is uh, I want to focus in on the relationship of Christ to us, and, and specifically I want to talk about his suffering on the cross 
and and his resurrection and and the experience of what that was like for everybody that, that watched it happen. Um, so uh, to kind of build up to the moment of the cross, uh, I want to kind of give us some context of what the followers of Jesus understood before the crucifixion happened. Uh, they mostly were Jews. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophecies uh, about a Messiah coming. And they, they saw that in Christ, many of the, the prophecies of the Old Testament were being fulfilled, so much so that, that many started to believe that he is the Messiah. They also, some of the inner circle, some of those closest to him, also realized that even though some of the thinking in Jewish culture was just that the Messiah was some kind of great leader, they started to realize that the Messiah is more than that, that he actually is the son of God. And, and we know that there's at least three of them that specifically stated uh, to him when he asked, who am I, that, that he was the son of God or is the son of God. And so they understood those two things really well. Um, and then they heard him say that he was going to die, but they didn't understand that exactly. Uh, they had expectations from their understanding of the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to deliver his people, God's people, and they took that to mean here on earth, that God was going to deliver his people and that um, basically Israel, the nation uh, that was seen by them as, as God's only people, were going to be restored to greatness here. Uh, and they were expecting that to happen fairly soon because they could see that the Messiah was here right in front of him, right in front of them. Uh, but they also, seeing that he was God, he also started to become, um, you know, their leader and their hero in many ways. Uh, he did miracles. He did many supernatural things. He was untouchable. He, he would enter into debates with uh, the leading religious leaders of the day, and he always won. And there were people constantly trying to kill him and uh, hurt him, but he always seemed to be able to, to get away with, without a scratch. He seemed in complete control, in complete confidence, and I'm sure for them... That was um, very comforting. You know, we're following a leader, and he's, he's in control. He's, uh, nobody can touch him. Nobody can impact him. Um, he's in charge. Then, uh, leading up to the crucifixion, they, they have dinner with him at Passover, and then that night they go to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus goes to pray, and Jesus is clearly shaken. Uh, and he's going, or he's suffering already. Uh, because of anxiety about what's about to happen. And for them, this starts the period of confusion because up until that point, Jesus was untouchable, and all of a sudden, there is this expression of suffering. And that doesn't make sense when they're thinking of the infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing God. How can he be suddenly feeling pain? And I want you guys to listen to the... Uh, in Matthew 26, uh, I'm going to do verses 38 and 39. This is when they're on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus uh, starts to, uh, or he's with some of the disciples, and it reads, Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This passage, um, 
from a from a logical perspective is really surprising. The fact that that Jesus is feeling great sorrow, even to death. He's already suffering. And the fact that he's asking to God, is there no other way? And this impacts me because oftentimes in this world, uh, there's suffering that we can't explain. And we don't understand why it's happening a certain way. And the Bible does not answer the question why suffering exists or why, um, why it has to be certain ways oftentimes. Um, but what we do know is that we have a God and uh, we have a brother in Christ uh, that suffered with us and also had to undergo suffering that, um, that was part of, of something he had to go through, uh, that there's not an expressed reason exactly why it had to happen the way that it did. It just did have to happen that way. Um, but taking it a little further, so the disciples see this happen, when the crucifixion happened, it was more than just him dying. I think the thing that would have been most surprising for me if I was in that moment is not just that, that Jesus is taking on himself to die for us, because that's heroic. That's something that you might expect your hero to do. Um, but it was the fact that it was his enemies that were doing it to him, and they did it in such a disgraceful way. And he's... he's either letting them do it, or he's not able to stop it in some way, I'm sure it would have been extremely confusing for them. And I want you to think about like what they were seeing. What they saw was the, um, the temple guards and the priests come, they take Christ, uh, they're accusing him, uh, they're falsely accusing him, and they're sentencing him to condemnation. And all along the way, they're mocking him, they're spitting on him, uh, they're um, slapping him. And from a logical perspective, that had to be really jarring. Uh, he's been untouchable up until this point, and all of a sudden, he's being violated in all of these ways. Uh, and he's, uh, they're his enemies, uh, weak, regular people, are treating him with huge disgrace. And it goes even further. They mock him as God. They put a crown of thorns on his head and are making fun of him. Like, if you're a king, uh, look at you now, you know? Uh, and they, uh, they go even further. They even strip him naked. And you think about what that had to have feel, felt like to think Peter had seen Jesus transfigured, had seen the glory of Christ, and now he's seeing Christ naked being spit on and being slapped uh, and being cursed. And, and when he was on the cross, the, the people mocking him were saying, if you're the son of God, why don't you take yourself down off that cross and save yourself? Why can't you save yourself? And I'm sure the disciples were thinking the same thing. Yeah, why, why don't you save yourself? And how can he save us if this is what he's going through. And it was, a, it was uh, for them, this whole experience would have been completely disoriented. And also think about just how tired they must have been. Like the trial had gone on all that night. They had been praying with him in the garden. He had been taken away that night. Um, they were there. Uh, several of them were there watching the proceedings. Uh, then they're there with him that whole day as he's being mutilated and, and humiliated and killed. 
Uh, and in all of this, Jesus never wavers in what he's doing. So on the one hand, none of it makes sense. But on the other hand, he's either completely crazy or like he's got some plan. And for some reason, all of this makes sense or it has a purpose. But it would not have made sense to them, considering the holiness and the greatness of God, that he would come down from heaven in order to go through this. And the other thing that's interesting is Jesus doesn't cry out in any of this until he's on the cross. It's when he's on the cross that he says, uh, my God, my God, why, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the moment that it appears to be the most excruciating, whatever he's going through. Uh, but from a physical pain uh, standpoint, there were many other moments along the way that would have been normal moments to cry out when he was, when he was nailed, when he was whipped, anytime he was hit. These would be moments that the physical pain would have been most acute. But there was something that happened on the cross that was much worse than all of that, all that stuff in the physical world that they could see. Uh, and we know from a theological perspective that he took on the full guilt and full uh, pain of the world, the sin of the world, all of the wrath of God for all the justice that needs to be done, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, is the actual law. So in order for that not to occur to all of us, for all of our sin, it had to be done uh, justly on Christ. And so all that pain went on him in that moment. And that's the price that he was paying in that moment. But they would not have understood all of that. And so, so at this point, then after that, it's quiet. Like, Christ dies, they bury him, and then nothing's happening for three days. And, and so I, I imagine they would have been in complete shock. I imagine it would have been really difficult to sleep, even though I'm sure they were extremely exhausted. Um, and it's at this point that we come to the resurrection. And, and so our passage today is uh, John chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 11 through 17. In the context of this passage, John is uh, showing several different vignettes of little stories of people's experiences, uh, both at the cross and after the cross. And all of them demonstrate uh, the same theme. And the theme is that none of them saw this coming. All of the followers of Christ had no idea that any of these things were going to happen. They were expecting something very different. And so they're distraught and suffering, much more so than I was in ninth grade about football. They were suffering, you know, in a more cosmic, cataclysmic level of, like, their hopes and dreams, everything that they thought uh, was going to happen was happening in a very different way and uh, was very much dashing their hopes. Um, and so, so we come to, to this moment, and this is the context of Mary Magdalene going to the tomb. And we don't know a lot about Mary Magdalene. Most of the, the information we get from her is around the crucifixion. But we do think that uh, she was a, a leader among the women. Uh, she's always listed with other women, but uh, her name is mentioned, and her name is always mentioned first, uh, which is typical of, of more of a leader type. Um, so she's likely not a weak person. Uh, she's likely stronger, and, and notice uh, that she's there. She's facing what's happening, which which is also indicative of somebody that's stronger. Somebody that's not strong would avoid all of uh, this moment, but she's there, and she's come to see Christ. And so this is the context uh, of our passage. So starting in verse 11, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, 
sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have, yet, I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So John's point throughout all of this, uh, this section of, of the book is that Jesus suffered horribly um, and then rose from the dead, and basically none of us saw it coming. In all parts of it, we had no idea that it was coming. And then after that, Jesus specifically appeared to us and, and oftentimes gave us little things to do, um, but showed us that he had physically risen from the dead. These are John's two big points. But I want us to notice a couple of other things about this specific passage. So the first is uh, just Mary's affection and her longing for Jesus. Sometimes we feel like God is distant, uh, and God doesn't care, and God's too big to be uh, affectionate and close to us. But Mary knew Jesus firsthand, and that was not her impression of Jesus at all. Although she shows great respect for him, she, she refers to him multiple times as her Lord, and, uh, and she calls him her teacher. And those are not terms of endearment or terms of affection. Those are ter terms of respect. But at the same time, her actions show that she doesn't fear uh, approaching him. She actually clings to him, and she's weeping, missing him, and she just wants to see his body, even though she's distraught and disoriented about what's going on. And so uh, we see the, the deep affection that she has for him, and yet at the same time, deep respect uh, that she has for him. And this is important because she knew him firsthand in ways that, that, that we don't get to experience today, but it tells us a lot about who Jesus was in her life. Uh, the next thing I, I, I want you um, to pay attention to, uh, to in, in this passage, with our theme of um, family, is just how much Jesus is emphasizing family in this passage. Uh, he sends her away to tell his brothers, which are the disciples, that's who she goes and tells, uh, he refers to them as, as his brothers, um, and, and the, the language that he uses is very strong about uh, him ascending to my father and your father. It's not, uh, it's like we were talking about in the first week, it's not purely metaphorical. It's a real thing. We really have God the Father as our father, and Jesus really is treating us as brothers in a relational sense. It does not mean that we are equal with Jesus, but it does mean in a relational sense that he's, he's letting us have access to him on a brotherly level. 
and that we have access to God the Father as his children. So takeaways from this passage, and I guess the last thing to notice is Mary's distraught, the disciples are distraught, everybody's expecting different things that are happening, but what they don't realize is that something much bigger than what they thought was going to happen is actually happening. Something much better than what they were expecting and, and, and something eternal uh, is happening in this moment. And Mary, because she's so upset about what she thinks has happened and what she understands, that she doesn't even notice Jesus when she's looking for him and he's right in front of her. And so oftentimes, um, this is the same experience that we go through. We don't understand a lot of things in our, our life, but that doesn't mean that there isn't some greater purpose that's beyond our awareness that actually is worth all of it, no matter what it is. And for them in this moment, there was a lot of, of fear and anxiety about what was going on. It was not just that they had seen their friend die. They had seen all of their hope, they thought, had died. But at, this, but at the same time, actually, the opposite had just occurred. Something that was even bigger than what they were hoping for had actually just happened right in front of them. And in the moment that she should have been rejoicing, she's weeping and suffering because of a misunderstanding and not trusting that God's got it. He's in control. And the next uh, thing to take away from this is just how much God the Son and God the Father suffered for us. The suffering described here uh, is not uh, partial. And it's, it's more than just the physical suffering, although the physical suffering was very real and very, uh, very obvious to the disciples, so much so that it, it very much caused them to be in this state of shock that they were in. So I want to read from Isaiah uh, 53. This is part of um, the prophecy about the coming Messiah. And Isaiah says, uh, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So a couple things to notice about this. Uh, it's clearly a, um, I mean this is hundreds of years before Christ came and yet it's it's referencing uh, very specific things that are foretelling what's going to come. This is part of the prophecies that Christ fulfilled, uh, which is really cool uh, to see that and to confirm that, that Christ truly is the Messiah. Uh, but the language in, in these verses is not mild. Notice that he was crushed, completely annihilated, destroyed, uh, and it was for our transgressions and for our iniquities. And, and the punishment that he went through was to bring us peace. And so God is saying that we're not in peace naturally. We're not in peace without this. Uh, and so Christ had to suffer, and his suffer was, her suffering was total. It was complete. It was complete destruction of him for us. But that's the only way for peace for us. And so how great is the love of God the Father to crush his son for us. And how great is the Son's love for us to endure that suffering 
and to be crushed specifically for us. So the disciples didn't understand all of this at the beginning. They went through a process of experiencing that and seeing the suffering and watching it and seeing um, or feeling the pain and, um, and seeing the disgrace that God went through and just being totally absorbed by that before they get to the point of finally realizing, oh, he didn't do that because they were doing it to him. It wasn't that suddenly the devil got the upper hand and, and destroyed Christ and now the devil's going to win or something like that. It's like, no, he actually did all of that for us. All that suffering that we saw, all that pain that we saw, it was for us. And it's so much, uh, or it's a much greater sacrifice when you realize that just for God to come from heaven down to earth is a major condescension. To come and be with us and to limit himself to be one of us and to feel the things that we feel is, is already an incredible thing. But then to take it all the steps further that he went to and to go through the humiliation and the death um, at the hands of people that he made is even more astounding. And when you think about all of that, uh, you know, we're not able to understand why it all happened the way that it did. But what we do know is that we have a God, just as it says in this, that he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. And so in some sense, through Christ's life, all the sorrows that we have, Christ carried with us. And so we very much have a God that suffers with us. So it doesn't explain everything, why it has to be the way that it is, but it does show us that we have more than just a God that feels for us. No, 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 he feels with us. He's not a brother that's just encouraging us, but he's a brother that gets down and goes through everything with us. So I, I want to read uh, the last verse. Uh, this is John 17, verses 24 through 26. Uh, just because I think these verses are a good picture of, of Jesus' love and desire, his heart for us, expressed in words. And it says, starting in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, or O perfect Father, O Father that only does good, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me, with which you have loved me, may be in them and I in them. The language here is ex extremely intimate, and, and Jesus is expressing a desire for intimacy with us, and this is before the crucifixion, before he's going to be separated from all of us. But he's going through all of that to cause that to happen or to allow that to happen, to allow this intimacy. And we see his heart right here is all about being united in intimacy with us and staying united in intimacy with the Father. It's Jesus' only concern. It's his obsession. So I, thinking about how to take this in... Um, you know, as I've been studying the concept of family, I got turned on to it basically um, by 
feeling like I was going through the motions a lot of times at church, and and oftentimes feeling distance uh, between me and God and distance between me and other people. Um, and a lot of times for me, I I would be going through the motions of just doing things, uh, just getting work done and doing tasks. And I started to question, like, why is there so much intimate language in the New Testament? And like I talked about last week, we have to understand our identity in Christ as children of God and as brothers within a family or siblings within a family to understand the foundation of the intimacy that we should express not only to God but also to one another. And so, you know, if, if I were to find out that I have a long-lost uh, sibling, a long-lost sister or brother, there would be a connection because, and this is what we were talking about last week, because from an identity standpoint, we have a shared identity. We're part of the same family. And so even though we don't know anything about each other, because of this shared uh, identity, we have a, a common bond that's, that's deep, that's strong. And that's the, the bond that that exists between all of us uh, that are followers of, of God. And, and what we see in Christ is, is the example of, of how it should really be applied, how deep it should go. And so this week I want you guys, uh, in thinking about this, to just remember that Christ suffered for you and with you. Uh, he bore our sorrows, the sorrows that you have today, in some senses, he also carries or carried. Uh, so you don't have a God that, that doesn't care. You have a God right there with you, going through things with you. Um, and when you experience confusion and pain, know that and be comforted by, you're not the first believer to experience confusion and pain. You're not the first to have doubts. One of my favorite verses in, in the Bible um, is uh, Matthew, uh, is it, what's the last chapter in Matthew? 28? 28, 17, yeah. We talked about it this week. Uh, anyway, it, it's right before Jesus ascended into to heaven. He's already raised from the dead, and he's speaking to only the disciples. It says that the disciples were there. Uh, and it doesn't mention anybody else. And he's about to give them the Great Commission. He's about to tell them to go into the world and, and spread the good news and tell people about the gospel uh, and tell people who I am. But in verse 17, something that people don't talk about enough, it says, and they doubted. This is the disciples. Christ is risen from the dead. Like, if there was ever a time that you would not have any doubt, you would think it would be right then. But that's what they were experiencing and so, you know, we don't need to feel shame about expressing our struggles uh, within the church. It's normal. The greatest, the apostles, our original leaders, the ones that founded the church that we're a part of now, um, you know, they were a mess at times. And, and it's, it's incorrect to think of them as weak. You know, Jesus described Peter as a rock. He didn't describe him as a wimp. He was strong. And, and yet... He was the one that, that fell and, and denied Christ in the middle of the trial. And so the strongest strength that we have is not going to be enough. And we're going to struggle. But we have a Christ that suffered with us uh, and suffers for us. And that is the picture. Him as our great brother is the picture of how we need to be among 
among us. Uh, we need to suffer and celebrate together. When, when one of us is hurting, it should hurt all of us, just like if my sister was hurt, it would hurt me because I love my sister. Uh, and if my sister succeeds or does some great accomplishment in some way, I celebrate because she's my sister. The same should be true here, among us, about us. Um, there's a connection between us, even if we don't know each other that well, that we should have a desire to know each other because we've got a long time in the future to spend together. Um, so in applying this this week, I basically just want to emphasize when you have doubts, don't be afraid to share them. Talk about them. It's normal. Uh, don't expect yourself to, to have such great faith that you won't go through those things. Uh, you will. Um, and then help each other with those things and with other forms of suffering, whether it be physical pain, whether it be uh, fear about death or about um, a lost family member. We are called to suffer together. Uh, and it's, it's beautiful when it, when it happens the right way. And the, the story of the apostles uh, does not stop with their doubts. We know from tradition that almost all of them died proclaiming that Jesus was Christ. And that's what Christ does in our lives. It's not about our performance along the way, uh, but it is about where he's taking us. And so also just rest in confidence that God's taking you somewhere. Uh, if you put your faith in God, he's got it. He's going to take care of you. Um, and, and if you're not, don't expect uh, intimacy with God if you're not pursuing him. You can't know how great that is unless, unless you enter into a relationship, too. It takes two to have a relationship. Um, so anyway, let's pray.